Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yeah, but they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. weird hairs that were growing out of your back I, I had them analyzed but they were definitely not human if you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person too when you saw her socially no. you're afraid to be destroyed and recreated aren't you you're changing Seth everything about you is changing oh no what's happening to me am I dying I want to know what's going on what does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pipe with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Welcome to another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of March, we're honoring none other than the master of body horror himself, David Cronenberg. And today's episode highlights Cronenberg's stellar remake of the 1958 classic horror film The Fly, which capitalizes on some of the best 80s practical effects and the dynamic duo of its leads. The Fly follows scientist Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, who decides to streamline his tests for his teleportation device he's building. But during his test, a common housefly gets into the telepod, splicing his genes with the flies. Brundle's journalist girlfriend Veronica, played by Gina Davis, documents Brundle's horror-flying metamorphosis into the terrifying creature known as the fly. And to break down Cronenberg's gene-splicing masterpiece as film writer and host of the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club Horror Podcast and returning friend of the show, Devon Taylor. Welcome back to the show, man. Thank you for having me back. Uh, yeah, we had uh, such a great discussion uh, talking Starry Eyes, and then you came in and crushed it on Bloody Blunt Cinema Club for our Black Christmas special. So um, I am ready to dive into another one of my uh, one of my favorites. I was gonna say this is uh, a, di- a little bit different than last time we talked because you and I had seen different entries in Black Christmas's uh, trilogy, as it were, kind of just the three films within that universe, and it's great to kind of be on a level playing field this time in terms of revisiting a classic that we both love but i think in getting started kind of what is your cronenberg origin story do you kind of remember your first introduction uh, to his work yeah i uh i can't remember if i had mentioned it when we had uh talked on uh when i came on the podcast last time but um the fly is one of the earliest films i've ever seen it was one of my first horror films um, it was kind of, cause it was, I watched, I remember I watched like a nightmare on Elm street, loved it. Like, uh, and I really liked cube. And like, so when my uncle saw that, like, do you know, I like kind of like a little sci-fi edge, you know, 
and he like saw that I was like really enjoying the horror. He's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to just go ahead and step you up a notch. To, uh, so seven-year-old me watching The Fly <laughs> was, um, you know, was a good time. But I remember just whenever I watched it initially, I was like enthralled by it, you know, and I was just like, whoa, this is just like so cool. And then just over the years, you know, we'll get into it more, you know, where I have this like very new appreciation for it. But um, as far as Cronenberg goes, I mean, it's interesting because I'm like I'm a fan, but I actually still haven't seen like too many of his films. Like I, I keep meaning to like you know do like a marathon one day or like go back. So it's like like I've seen like I've seen Scanners and Rabbit and like, but I still haven't seen Videodrome for some reason. Every time I go to search for it, it's not streaming like anywhere. So I just like haven't gotten around to it. But, uh, you know, I've seen, like, A History of Violence, which is, like, you know, a very different side of Cronenberg as well. But, you know, um, I very much like Cronenberg's, you know, with, you know, the sci-fi horror and how intrigued he is by body horror Mm -hmm. and the way that he you know interlaces uh sexuality into into his horror movies um not as much here this is this is a love story here but you know there is still um you know of course there's still his sexual vibes in there but um i've always been intrigued by the connection between sci-fi body horror and then sex like the way that he brings those together and then like and then obviously his son is a chip off the old block right (laughs) and taps into literally the exact same type of stuff just in a different way which is also really cool so it's you know cool that we have uh two really good cronenberg directors and um you know giving us some good sci-fi horror yeah, Cronenberg's one of those guys that he's able to kind of take his style and then jump around to different genres, right? I mean, his more recent stuff is more kind of in the, I guess, crime drama world, whereas his earlier stuff yeah. is a lot more experimental. And like you said, it's more blending of sci-fi and horror. And uh, Videodrome is one of my f- favorite films of his. And I'm kind of like you in that I haven't seen a lot of his movies. I've probably seen five or six of them, but... The five or six that I've seen are incredibly memorable for a variety of different examples of kind of him expanding on that body horror vernacular of his. And it's so funny for me to like refer to him, and I think a lot of people do, as like being a master of horror, being a master of body horror, and yet I've probably only seen, like I said, five or six of his films, and yet he leaves such a distinct mark with each film in a way that is, I mean, it's unlike any, every time you see him do something new in one of his films, or even if it's me going back and watching an older film, I'm like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like this before. Just in a way that he, is so unique. Yeah, like he he has a way with uh, with his visuals, you know, of just like really putting an image, but then also like, you know, just like a... Uh, even though he does like weave in and out of genres, you know, there is always just that consistent Cronenberg vibe. Mm-hmm. Like, and you, and I can't really describe it. It's just like you know, you know it when you have a director, and you know we're talking masters of horror here, and like all the masters have that that signature, you know, just like feel and tone. Even like maybe not always the consistency thematically, but like you just obviously you watch a Cronenberg movie, you know you're watching a Cronenberg movie, and but he just like there's this there's just this mood across across all of his films that I find really interesting and like that's why I find intriguing that he's able to kind of bounce back and forth between you know 
uh, this like sci-fi horror side of him and then like you said he does like these interesting crime dramas but like you know still kind of a little heady twist to some of them a lot of the times but you, you always know it's him whenever you're watching a Cronenberg film for sure and I think that that is the biggest telltale sign of it like being a master of horror in a way where you ha- you can't really describe it almost sometimes and yet it's ever present and it's something that you recognize immediately and even if somebody threw on a Cronenberg film that I wasn't familiar with and I'd never seen. At the same time though, I feel like within the first 10 or 15 minutes of that movie, you're gonna pick up on some of the elements of a Cronenberg, I mean, there's that term Cronenbergian. It's a Cronenbergian film and it's like, well, yeah, because Mm -hmm. that sort of style and mood and atmosphere really, it almost uh, precedes him in a way that is prevalent in almost all of his films. But um, in kind of talking with you before this in recording, um, you described The Fly as being like the most tragic love story in horror. I think that's the way you put it. And that's a really, really mm-hmm. interesting angle. And it's something that, I mean, you said that to me a couple months ago in, in the uh, interim. I've seen this movie again like twice. And it's something that stuck with me in a way that has really made me look at the film differently, obviously, than I did when I was very little and saw it. Just because, like you had said, we both came to this movie so young that initially we're kind of captivated by the the grossness yeah and just <laughs> yeah the grossness of it ripping out teeth and fingernails and uh, breaking wrists and bars and thing and the very kind of like shocking body horror moments but i feel like for me the older i get it's a film that i obviously take a lot more away from moving up forwards uh, in my life and all of my different experiences and things and so i'm kind of just curious if you'd talk a little bit more about you finding this to be a tragic love story yeah so um if you if the listeners haven't checked out blade blunt cinema club the uh foundation of the podcast is you know exploring the subgenres within horror that's what really intrigues me about horror is you can obviously bring horrific elements to a story but you know the best ones don't lean on the horror elements they use the horror elements to you know amplify another theme or story going on so whenever yeah whenever i would start rewatching this a little bit older and stuff it's very much a character driven like love story between these two you know you have seth brundle who is you know he's a misunderstood guy he's one of those people he's a genius and like he's very socially awkward and you know like they don't even talk about it but it's like you know he might even be on the spectrum like if you kind of look at it that way so it's like you're really exploring this person who is trying to you know he's on the verge of something great but like he doesn't have you know he's he's doing this but like that's all he has in his life he doesn't connect with anything else but science until ronnie comes along you know like and then once he meets ronnie he kind of has a little bit more incentive and motivation you know to do these works and but then also looking at it in a different way not just thinking of you know the scientific experiment he's doing and you know and you watch their romance i mean it's literally what starts the movie like is them two having a conversation and flirting like the the movie literally jumps right in that's the first thing you go to so i mean and obviously you know because it is a classic you know like kind of body horror movie that's the thing that people remember the most is you know all the all the horror stuff but what i just always love watching is i mean you have jeff goldblum and gina davis at you know arguably the height of their powers in the late 80s you know and they had such phenomenal chemistry together like just like instantaneously 
And yeah. so it's like, that's what I, whenever I watch it now, that's what I am watching for. And that's, you know, I picked up on kind of some new stuff there too, because you have the relationship between them. And then you have this interesting supporting character in Stathis, the ex-boyfriend mm-hmm. kind of caught. And at first he's, you know, all skeevy and like, kind of, you're like, oh, he's going to be the creepy ex-boyfriend, like whatever. But then he even kind of has this redemptive arc of, you know, he still cares for Ronnie and then sees how much she cares for Seth and he's still willing to help her out in the end, you know, and like, you know, support her and stuff. So there's interesting relationship dynamics going on across it, you know, not just in the love story angle, but it is just a really tragic love story because Ronnie comes in and, you know, she's, she, you know, she appreciates Seth for who he is and and loves him, but then also is like trying to help make healthy changes. She goes and buys him some new clothes after realizing he wears the same outfit all the time, you know, and like kind of, you know, hyping him up a little bit as far as like, you know, supporting him through this journey and everything. So it's like he is, you know, she's helping these changes among him, but then so is the sci-fi element he has the literal physical changes happening as well and i think those two go really hand in hand together and you know and who doesn't love a good classic beauty and the beast story yeah really really well said i mean that is what i pick up on more and more every time i watch it now as an adult and i mean we'll get really into the kind of weeds with the dynamic duo and their chemistry but i never truly appreciated that the relationship and kind of the sporadicness of it and how like you said it kicks off in less in like the first 90 seconds of the movie it begins that way it begins with them meeting and then they sort of form this bond and then they go from there and that human element is what makes the end of the film so tragic right i mean it's like you had just said with the beauty and the beast angle this is what is fueling our investment in the movie and cronenberg lucked out in getting goldblum and davis for this role right i mean I don't look at a lot of Cronenberg's movies and fondly remember them for the characters Mm -hmm. per se, in terms of just like characters being very personable and kind of just their relationships. It's not really something that I attribute to him being all that Mm -hmm. successful at a majority of the time. Usually I go to his movies for like the imagery. Or a concept. He's a concept guy. Right. He's a concept guy. Exactly. And this is a film that it is without this dynamic duo of Goldblum and Davis I don't know how much investment is there because this movie I am invested in a way that um, you had mentioned Videodrome and that's one you should definitely check out uh, for your first film if you're going to dive into some Cronenberg. That is a film though that again is like a concept that's based around the visuals and the effects. It's not really one that I'm invested in this character per se. I'm kind of just Mm -hmm. along for the ride. Whereas the duo of Goldblum and Davis are what make me so invested in this in it being tragic. Like it's not just two people that are in a shitty situation. It's tragic because you want to see them walk into the sunset as it were together. Exactly. And I mean, yeah, like, like I said, like Kronberg is like a concept guy, which is great. Like I love like concept movies. I love character driven movies. And this is, you know, from what I've seen, you know, just one of the better unions of those two, because um, and like you said, like if it wasn't Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum, it might not, it wouldn't have worked out because I mean, cause when you look at 
the individual characters, they are both like pretty flawed as well. I mean, m one of my notes is the first thing out of Seth's mouth is him talking about wanting to change the world, him talking and, you know, showing his ego and prowess. And like, that's kind of his downfall is he kind of has this ego. He has this, you know, um, you know, insatiable desire to want to, you know, do something big and want, which, you know, isn't, uh, I, I mean, it's like a, you know, double-sided like flaw. It's a good thing, but also a flaw for him. And then you kind of look at Ronnie. I mean, it's like she was her ex-boyfriend is her editor, and then now she's you know she forms a romantic relationship with this like new uh you know her uh, story subject. So it's like she's not the best uh, journalist if you go by right. ethics and morals <laughs> at least. Um, but you know, so it's like you have these like two characters. I mean, and like honestly, like there are scenes like throughout where Seth is like kind is pretty unlikable at times like he's a very charming guy but then he he's very arrogant and kind of selfish and like you know and that's where the relationship is great and it comes back in where Ronnie doesn't you know like she doesn't shun him for it but she like tries to reel him in but then also realize like hey there's more to you know life and more to this experiment than just the experiment itself you know and so she kind of you know pulls that humanity out of him but like i mean just every scene they're in together i mean but like the the opening scene itself is just like the way they look at each other i mean they're freaking both of them have magnificent hair um <laughs> i mean we get tons of skin and body i mean cronenberg made this for the bisexuals as he usually does and <laughs> yeah. i mean because they're both so hot in this movie but they're also just like so great like they just mm. they really gel together just so perfectly like they the their charms matched up just like i don't know so in sync i actually had to look up and see if these two were like dating previously or during the filming of this movie because i was so taken by how captivating their charm and personality is with one another and just how their dialogue is so snappy in a way that you i mean they are convincing as a couple right as two people that are meeting and mm -hmm. kind of falling in love and becoming an item because their dialogue is just like two people that are so comfortable with one another and again it's like their relationship feels very natural mm -hmm. and it's forming and that like she shows up to the to his house and then it's showing him the different experiments and things and it's kind of like she's teasing him she's like oh those are some nice designer uh, telephone booths when he shows yeah. her the telepods <laughs> and they're kind of like taking jabs at one another like you do if you're like flirting with somebody that you find attractive for the first time or something to that extent and it's just such a natural progression in a way that it doesn't feel like this is forced and that's again that's an element that I definitely have noticed in some other Cronenberg movies that I've seen where character interactions or relationships feel forced it doesn't feel incredibly organic as it does here and i think that's because of these two actors just charisma yeah i would it, it definitely in the performances but then also uh have to shout out charles edward pogue who co-wrote the uh movie with cronenberg i think that probably helped out quite a bit um just in the character department and like it's it you know it's snappy you know flirty dialogue but also doesn't feel like you know i'm not watching like rom-com dialogue you know that is like just like extra trying to be a little bit snappier like it just yeah it feels really it feels really good it has a good rhythm to it you know and speaking of rhythm this movie is impeccably paced that has nothing to do with characters and stuff but just while it was on my brain like so the the way it flows is so natural there's not an ounce of fat on this movie and that's something that 
I've only really appreciated in getting to revisit it. I think I've watched this now like three times this year for different projects and things like that. But like this movie is the briskest 95 minutes I think you could have in a movie that gets so insane going from the conception of their relationship and then going to where it goes, which we'll get into. But yeah, there's not an ounce of fat on this. And to your point about the dialogue never kind of breaking down into like rom-com territory or something, I think you're right in that this is a partnership, whereas I think the um, the co-writer definitely probably had a little bit more to do with the human element, if I was to guess. And then Cronenberg probably came in because I know that uh, he rewrote the film uh, additionally. He probably added some more of that kind of, um, I don't want to say coldness, but kind of just rigidness, maybe. And that, yeah, I would think that that kind of like equalized a little bit. But that's a great point as well. Yeah, that rigidness is definitely important, too. Like, there's, you know, also, like, really great exchanges where they're not talking a lot, where it's, you know, very, very subtle kind of things, and, you you're you know, they're playing off their looks and stuff like that. It just, yeah, it, it feels really good, and, and um, there, but there's also uh, some really great lines. Like, one of, one of my favorite lines when I was, like, re-watching this morning was, um you know, the when they're back in his apartment and... You know they're kind of going back and forth and like i said seth isn't the most perceptive when it comes to like social stuff so i love the line where he goes he goes oh well, what's this is this, is this a romance we're having and yes. then she's like <laughs> yes i think it is and like just the and that line could come off corny too mm-hmm. but just the way he delivered it is was so good and um and uh to also bounce back to the pacing too was yeah like i mean i've seen this movie i don't know how many times i, I watch it all the time and I, I watched it like as soon as i woke up this morning it was like a great just like oh i'm gonna lay in bed and just like watch the movie and it was like i put it on and then it was like i blinked and it was 50 minutes gone by already and i was like oh wow like i totally forgot like that this movie it's just so smooth like yeah not not an ounce of fat on it and um you know because like pacing is a big thing to me like pacing is something that can really kill an experience for me and then also just because like rewatch rewatchability is a big thing for me as well like if i don't it, like for me i know there's people out there that like to just like kind of watch a movie once or twice and they'll just like kind of be done with it but like for me a movie is not really worth it if i want if i don't want to go back and watch it multiple times and like try to find these extra readings you know so it's like the fact that i've seen it so many times and it's still just such a smooth it just goes it it, it washes over you but that's also so weird to say when you're talking about the fly when you also have a guy that is ripping his ear off he's melting people's <laughs> ankles like you know we have you know it's so it's so weird that a movie like that that can have you know those things in it you know can still be just like such a uh, easy movie to go back to and i think that speaks to just how well of a remake this is right i mean it literally takes the original film and it strips it down to okay it's a guy teleportation and the fly that's it they don't try to tie in any of the because i don't know if you've seen the original but there's like this whole family lineage and everything that the Mm -hmm. original trilogy deals with and it's such an expert move on cronenberg's part to just say forget all of that we're starting with the bare bones of what this is the framework of it and then he's able to kind of insert what elements he thinks actually need to highlight on which is obviously the practical effects in the 30 years of uh practical effects and how far they've come since the original 
Yeah, I've only I've only watched the original like twice. I think. I mean, it's good, but yeah, totally different. And yeah, it has all those because that's how the movies of that time were, you know. So yeah, it is a great way to adapt it. And I mean, he literally only takes what he needs. Like, I mean, the movie starts when Ronnie and Seth meet at this thing, go straight into telling about the experiment, and then the movie doesn't have like an epilogue or anything. After Seth dies, credits credits roll like he literally was like i don't need to show you anything that you don't need like i'm giving you the story right here boom bam boom and like that's it and i like i love that literally just gives us the bare bones of what you need to know about these people and it never feels like you don't know them right and they have barely and like you said there's no exposition or anything and we learn who they are just by observing their interactions with one another and the amount that you're able to kind of get from that it's, it stuns me every time because it's one of those things where you don't need to know Brundle's... I mean, we get a brief exposition when uh, I think Stathis brings up his history, but again, mm-hmm. we know about Brundle's past in 30 seconds, if that even. And so mm-hmm. to kind of just keep the focus be on their interactions with one another, like you said, it just fuels that pacing in a way that um, it really just <laughs> makes this more watchable than it should be, you know, considering how uh, demented and disturbing it gets. But uh, some of the interesting kind of considerations for Seth uh, that before they settled on Goldblum that I thought were wild were, for starters, James Woods, which... I mean, duh, I not, guess, of course. Not charming enough to pull this off at all. No. <laughs> there was Mel Gibson, again. Again, Don't yeah. Don't see that at all. Neither of them also, I feel like, could play off this um, kind of like nerdy angle with Brundle, like that nerdy identity where you're kind of just like, I feel like those are two kind of way too alpha macho actors that would not be okay with portraying a Mm -hmm. guy that was like so uncomfortable in his own skin, let alone not knowing how to interact with like this beautiful woman. Yeah, I mean, and that's what what I love about Seth Brundle as a character and like, you know, choosing Goldblum, because like you said, like with Woods or Gibson, it would have been you know, more the, okay, we have the macho guy that can be soft. And we see that in every leading man in so many movies, you know, it's always the macho guy and then he has a soft side, but this is the opposite. We have the soft, you know, kind of insecure, um, you know, kind of guy. And then you see the rigidness that he has to him as well, you know, in sometimes the way that he, even before the transformation, you know, he kind of already has a hint of that, just like kind of, you know, because he's very, efficient in the way he speaks and like kind of you know i know a lot of people like that and it's like they're not that way you know as a bad thing until it's amplified by you know the transformation that he ends up going through and then i thought it was interesting that they uh were considering linda hamilton for uh for ronnie but apparently linda hamilton read the script and was like so disgusted by it (laughs) that she just bowed out but again i think that i mean Ronnie and Gina Davis is such a good job of kind of just being this person that dives into the deep end enthusiastically. And then as soon as she kind of realizes what she's in for, it's so sympathetic because you do see in her arc where at first this is a story. Obviously, this is just a story. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do what I need to do to get this story. I'm going to probably I'm going to try to lead this guy on. So he takes me to his lab and then reveals more than he should. But then you really do see her again. It comes back to their chemistry. You see her fall for him in a way that is incredibly sympathetic because by the end of the film, it's what makes it so tragic is that she has to watch him go from being potentially like this rebound from her shitty, abusive, toxic boss 
to the dream guy, quote unquote, but then we see what he has to endure for the remainder of the film. Yeah, she um, she she has this great quality of like, you know, she sees the best in him. Like even when things are still starting to go downhill, she still sees the best in him. And that's something that, yeah, something so interesting. And like, I mean, Gina Davis, what a run that she had in this like late 80s, you know, early 90s. Um, you know, whenever she kind of bounced from League of Her Own, then we got Beetlejuice and then this, like, I mean, she had uh, and then Thelma and Louise. And then like, I mean, she had such a crazy run in this era. And I mean, and, and she, and, and it's like, she uses her charm, but she doesn't use like, you know, she wasn't like at this event in like a skimpy outfit or anything like that, you know, or, you know, she's like, not like, you know, she doesn't put herself out there in that way but she knows she's confident though too she's confident she's charming she knows how to you know sweet talk someone and she kind of and I like that you know she realizes that she's gonna be the one that is like kind of making more of the moves and a little bit more of the instigator but she doesn't like you know see that as a bad thing and Seth also doesn't like feel like emasculated or anything by like a woman that is gonna just like kind of you know I'll, I'll guide you like you know I'll, mm-hmm. I'll get you there and then you know and then you just return the moves back and then we'll be all good you know and so I, I do really like um the the character uh, characterization of Ronnie and then and the way that she you know kind of progresses in the end and then like you know she she sticks through him through this whole thing like um the, the scene whenever he's like really going off and then she goes to his loft and sees the, the other woman there and she's like leaving and then in, in any other movie you know that character would have gotten all upset and she would have stormed out and then she would leave and then 20 minutes later then they would like kind of have a work around then they come back together and it's like then the next thing you know you have 20 minutes of extra movie that you probably didn't need right instead they just choose to be like you know, she still sees the best in him. Like, I now I'm just like, I'm scared for you because I'm scared for like your safety and like where you're going. Like, I'm not even thinking about me and you right now. I'm thinking about you. And I think that is like such a powerful, uh, you know, part for her character. Yeah, they both come off as such genuine people that do care for one another. And I mean, that ex- what you just uh, described, that scene is such a great example of that because. It's not about the fact, at this point, it's no longer romantic between them, and yet she hangs around for the worst of what's to come. And it really does just show that these are two people that she loves him in the way that she cares about him, whether, like, I would almost say at that point, like, uh, if I mean, if you were on good terms with them, like an ex would or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, if you got divorced from somebody, you'd say, oh, I'll always love them to a certain extent. And, I mean, Gina Davis goes through it uh, worse than I think most would, but... Um, it again, it's just two very genuine people, and it's an element of this film that really surprises me every time I go back and rewatch it because those aren't qualities that I attribute to a majority of characters that I've seen in Cronenberg's films. It's more about, like we said, the concept and how fucked up and crazy those concepts can go in different directions, but it never comes down to two people that seem like they genuinely care for one another. and. It gives this film, again, the kind of tenderness that it needs to make it as tragic as it is in the uh, climax of it. 
Yeah, and that's why I say like you know I call it more of a I call it more of a love story than like a romance because like you said like it, it goes beyond just like the romance because yeah the romance ends I mean it's kind of it's like almost halfway through the movie maybe like at like the 50 55 minute mark so it's like so it's kind of interesting because it's like that's not something you see in you know regular romance movies let alone a horror movie you know that they're gonna take the time to show this very interesting relationship and type of love i mean it's like so funny because like and this is where why i love rewatching movies and like when you never know when you need to rewatch something because i mean i literally just broke up with a partner a month ago and like we were together for a while and but we're still friends right now like we're very close like we were literally hanging out today and it's like you said like it was because it's like yeah i still love this person i care for that person you know so it's like that's why i love rewatching movies but it's also like i said it's just not a relationship that you see portrayed on on screen all that often and cronenberg's approach to sex i think is very interesting in that it, it he explores it in multiple different ways throughout his filmography but it feels like it has meaning behind it in a way that I don't normally attribute with horror movies. A lot of the times, like, I wouldn't even call them romances in horror, but it's more like when you, characters have sex in horror, it's usually an indication somebody's about to die, right? Yeah. But in this, like, it adds, it gives legitimacy to their relationship in a way that, like you said, I think it happens probably an hour into the movie, but it's not in, we're not kind of... There's not a lot of sex in the film, but there's just enough that you understand that this is a relationship that they're both invested in in a way that we see is, Brun I mean, it's uh, to Brundle's detriment later in the film when he kind of brings this, this I think she's known as like the barfly on, on the IMDb page, but he brings <laughs> home the barfly and none of the romance is there, obviously, for obvious reasons, but it's more that at that point, comparing the two sex scenes, one is relationship focused and the other one is more like facilitating his insanity almost or his wanting his need to dive deeper into the uh the madness that he's uh, uh experiencing yeah i mean of course like kronberg's got he's not gonna not put sex in a movie i right. mean as what he does <laughs> but what i like what is different from his other films is you know it's not one the sex scenes aren't showy at all i mean we don't get i i very much would have loved a gina davis even a gina davis side boob would have sufficed but we didn't even get that that's okay we do get jeff goldblum butt though i'll take that um but what you said is like there is meaning behind it because yeah there's the the relationship sex and it's like and there's there's a another one in there too but so it's like the very first one is like you know them having sex together and you know maybe seth might not be a virgin but you can tell he's probably not a guy that has a lot of sex and like you can kind of tell like the way they like stop having sex is very awkward like it like just <laughs> it like kind of they just like kind of <laughs> tapered off and it made me yeah. laugh because i mean you can just like tell he's that's he's not as like that sexual of a guy and then they have sex and um you know after he went through a transport when he's like at his peak you know and they have sex for hours and she's like how are you even still have fluids and he like still wants to have more sex you know because he's like all beefed up so it's like he has that you know transformation that's like still when they're together and then like you said then we have the bar fly and then it's like yeah no like there's no romance it's just um 
showing I'm an alpha, you know, and all those things. So yeah, like he uses the sex scenes as character progression in in this movie, and like, and that's the way you should do it, obviously. And it's really interesting how he's able to kind of facilitate the sex scenes around Brundle's uh, mental state, and that's really a big element of this film. And obviously, it goes through a lot of Cronenberg's films, especially in the '80s and earlier. His kind of obsession with uh, flesh and with bodies mm-hmm. and the ways in which he's able to kind of manipulate that in wonderfully disturbing ways. And something that's really interesting about this film, I think, is his obsession. And this is coming off of the heels of Videodrome, um, which was in 83, I believe. And it's interesting how he blends flesh and metal and technology. And again, mm-hmm. it comes back to your point that you made earlier. Like, this is a really fantastic example of his blending of subgenres in unique and interesting ways where he takes the science element, the sci-fi, and then he blends it with the body horror element that he's so well known for. And I mean, it really does make for, I mean, granted, we'll get into the practical effects that really facilitate all of that, but it does show you again that Cronenberg is able to make a mood and an uncomfortableness with his films in a way that really, I don't think can be replicated. And it's kind of like we had said earlier, it's all, I mean, within the first 10 or 15 minutes of a Cronenberg movie, you know you're watching a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, um, I, I very much like, yeah, like you said, his his obsession with flesh and skin and body. And yeah, the because like those, those are things I'm interested in. Like there's something about, you know, the when you like kind of see the difference, like, you know, like when you start seeing he has like this like ooze like slightly mm-hmm. off his skin and like, you know, as the film goes, he like gets like sweatier. Like yeah. after he, after he transforms, like I mean, yeah. Cronenberg loves making men sweaty in his movies. Right. Um, but yeah, this like you know, there's always like a this moist like he it, it, his films are very tactile. Like they yeah. they have like really great texture to them, and like especially like at the very end, you know, after Seth is so we have Seth Brundlefly Pod now. And he has the, the just the metal and the wires run through him, and there's like, yeah, the the blending of those, you know, I bet I bet Cronenberg wishes he made Tetsuo the Iron Man so bad. Um, he was like, he saw that and he goes, damn it, how did I not make that movie? Um, right. <laughs> uh, but obviously, you know, the whoever directed Tetsuo was a big Cronenberg fan, obviously. But um, yeah, I I, I love. Um, uh, directors with like recurring motifs you know like you said and like kind of you know which adds to like you said that signature like as as an aspiring filmmaker myself like I think that's like one of the ultimate like one of my ultimate goals is like I want people to be able to just like watch what I'm watching and or watch what they're watching and be like yes this is a Devon Taylor like thing like I I see that and you know that's the reason I do uh, photography mainly is like to try to you know harness that like what is my vibe you know and um the way that Cronenberg returns to a lot of his same themes and aesthetics um is good but it but it's also like it's not like he's it's not repetitive because he switches it up he does in different Mm -hmm. ways you know it's not like he's just doing the same thing over and over again either he's exploring the same motif but he does it in such you know radically different ways in all of his films that was something that I talked about with another guest in another Masters of Horror episode when we were talking about John Carpenter, right? He's got this signature style that 
kind of permeates throughout all of his work, but it never feels like he's doing an impression of an older work of his. Everything it kind of feels very wholly original in whatever project he's tackling, and yet you can still notice the sort of signature motifs and stylistic choices that he makes. And something that I'd never really appreciated about this film was, again, it comes back to the pacing and how we never actually see the monster until the back half of the film, which is so rare. And that's one of the biggest changes from the original, coming back to this idea that this is such a fundamentally strong remake in that in the original film, it's the transformation's immediate. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, the metamorphosis of into Brundlefly is so periodic. And I mean, that's why this film largely feels like an analogy for like disease or like cancer. Yeah. Because that's... it's so slow in the deterioration and we go through multiple different kind of Brundlefly phases that it really packs the scares throughout the film in a way that you never get bored with anything that's happening, right? You don't kind of blow, he doesn't blow his cherry early on, here's the monster. It's slow and gradual. And I mean, for me, that's what fuels the tragic nature of uh, of their relationship is that watching a loved one break down over time mm-hmm. like that's something that a lot of people could probably relate to on some level right seeing somebody get older mm-hmm. or dealing with an illness and yet it's taken to this horrifying extreme as only Cronenberg can yeah they I mean they very they directly reference it to cancer in the film um mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting but yeah that's it's a very steady the way that they do it I think the practical effects it was like 27 phases was like the way that they like planned it out for him yeah to eventually make it into Brundlefly, which is just like, I mean, the, the attention to detail is just like crazy. And like, and then it's like the way they do it too. It's like, it's slow, slow, and then it starts speeding up, you know, and then just speeds mm-hmm. up at the end and then boom, it's just like, now we have this full on, he is no longer human by the end. Pretty much he is just like this full on monster. And it's, I mean, ugh, it's so goo. <laughs> like, I mean, Cronenberg's movies are so gooey. He loves him some goo, whether it's coming out of people's mouths or their skin. He loves goo and blood. I love it. Well, that's why his handling of gore and and things to that nature, like that's like the word that you use to describe it, which I think is perfect, is tactile. It's very tactile in a way that it doesn't just feel like it. This is why all of the kind of gore and blood and shocking imagery in his movies feels so different than anything you've seen before, just because it has that tactileness in the way that he kind of builds up to things is so detailed that nothing feels like it's kind of shocking for the sake of being shocking or anything like that, right? It's kind of, it, the buildup to it is gradual. So you're almost anticipating it to happen. You're almost anticipating he's gonna start ripping out teeth and fingernails and pus because yeah, he's been this sweaty, disgusting mess for the last 30 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's like every time I rewatch it, I always think to myself, I'm like, is am I desensitized or am I just like as I like kind of rewatch it? It's like it's pretty restrained. Like I mean, he like he really like holds it in, and then like when things like when the bad stuff does happen, it's like really quick. You know, obviously, uh, like I, I referenced it in the first episode that I came on is you know the the arm scene, the arm wrestling scene, is something. It was just I remember watching it the for the first time. And it just seared in my brain and I just like, but it, and, and then like, I mean, it's not, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's so simple. Like it's not something, you know, crazy. And then, 
And then I love um, the scene where it is um, they uh, when Ronnie records uh, Brundle doing the the food demonstration. <laughs> yeah. And then I love that they he doesn't show the video. He just plays the sounds, and then we see Stathis uh, how he's reacting to the video. And even that, it, I was just like, oh, yeah, the, like, I totally forgot that we, like, in this scene, we don't actually see it yet, and, you know, him doing it, and then, like, we kind of see him doing it, like, the spit stuff, but then we don't actually see him, like, however he sucks it back up. Uh, I can only imagine it's absolutely disgusting. I've always <laughs> wanted to see what it was. Like, I've always wished, like, that was a deleted scene or something to, like, actually see, like, the video footage, which um, is something that I appreciated on the rewatch uh, today was uh, the use of the video footage um, throughout the film. It, you know, not enough to be in the pseudo found footage category, but that'd be cool if somebody is going to, like, I, I hope they don't make another Fly movie. But if, but if you were going to, I think uh, the Fly found footage film would actually be pretty dope. That's a, that would be a pretty good platform for that. Um, I think also we have to mention, uh, should have mentioned from the uh, beginning of talking about the effects in the film. I mean, Chris Wallace did, was in charge of makeup effects and Fly design, and he'd go on to like win the Oscar for this movie. And I thought it was really funny that he talked to his crew before they took on this project and they were... I guess, lined up to do Gremlins 2, uh, the new batch. It was either they were going to do that or they were going to do The Fly. And I guess for The Fly, they only had like three months or something to get all of this practical oh, work wow. done, which is insane to me that it came out as good as it did. But it was one of those things where it came down to this, that they could either build off of something that was established or they could kind of have the keys of the kingdom and create something from the ground up in a way that, I mean... This movie stands for me is this and the thing are probably the two best examples of kind of like when people talk about, oh, do you like practical, what movies do you like that have great practical effects? It would be these two because they're two films that, again, they're very tactile in their effects. And it's kind of before you even see the monster, it's the buildup almost. It's seeing something break down in a way that still kind of is familiar or resembles a human and then within the blink of an eye, like you said, it kind of just goes all out in a way that it becomes unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not like anti-CGI like some people are like, you know, CGI has its place, you know, for sure. But it's like, if they would have, were to, you know, when you watch movies now and they're doing like de-aging, you know, and, you know, digital effects and that nature, they would do that for a fly movie now and like and it would and it just wouldn't have the same you know impact like i mean in rewatching it this morning like i saw mistakes and that's okay you know i would rather have this you know no you know knowing that you know jeff goldblum is trying to act through you know 10 pounds of prosthetic makeup <laughs> yeah and he's, you know, trying to emote and it kind of puts you in the headspace of like, you know, Seth is going further and further into himself and losing less and less humanity, you know, and losing to this form that he's taking now. And it just wouldn't have that effect if they just like were to digitally do that through, you know, throughout the movie. It just wouldn't it just wouldn't work. And then at the very end either, like, you know, like I would like. The, a digital brundle fly that would just be so weird you know it like uh it 
in like having Gina Davis's reaction to this. I mean, like imagine just like filming this scene. Like, I mean, geez, and she is so good in that finale. Oh my gosh, like uh, in that scene, and then there's like an earlier scene. Like Gina Davis has a like top tier cry face. Like she is oh so good in that final scene. Like she's you know like it, it just wouldn't yeah like if you when you have something in front of you but like i said like when with the the tactile nature of it like you know when you watch a movie and then you like kind of get that feeling in your mouth and your mouth starts watering because you kind of like can like feel what they're like seeing like it's Mm -hmm. like that's weird and like that's just like it it adds a whole new layer yeah definitely um I definitely would not want them to make another one because that would definitely be the angle they would take. They would definitely kind of have CGI heavy, but I think it's interesting you brought up like he had to wear, I think like 10 pounds of makeup, like you said, or prosthetics. And at some certain points, you actually see him like struggling to move. And yet him struggling to move plays into the physicality of the, the metamorphous stage that he's at. And it adds a lot of like literal weight but also weight this idea that his body is changing to the point where his own voice isn't recognizable obviously his limbs are falling off but also just like his ability even like his mobility is so hindered by this that for me like it 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 really like is upsetting to me seeing him go through this stage the older i get because then i start thinking about like my grandparents and things like that and i'm like yeah they're never going to be a fly monster hopefully but (laughs) this idea that over time like these things that we take for granted are going to become more difficult. Just walking around is going to become more difficult. This idea that, I mean, communicating to a certain extent Mm -hmm. might become more difficult. And Cronenberg's ability to really capture these human fears and these human uh, traits, whether they be physical or mental, um, his ability to kind of capture that and then obviously exemplify that into this, uh, (laughs) this technological body horror nightmare is a talent that I think it goes back to just the time, the rewatchability of this movie. There are themes that are very simplistic, and then he's able to take that high concept or that um, that gruesome, con- goopy concept that we love so much and apply it to these human traits in a way that it just makes it incredibly watchable or more watchable than uh, a guy that vomits acid should be. Yeah, I mean, it's it's deeply effective, and like you said, like you you when you're watching this like you you just genuinely feel bad for seth as like you're watching it um i mean shout out one i love that it did win the oscar for makeup like that's just amazing um i love it when you know the uh horror movies get some recognition like that so i do love that well deserved but then yeah like uh the biggest things that i like noticed on this rewatch was like you know one like the voice because like again like if you were to cgi the makeup and the look now you got to digitally alter the voice and now that's taking away from the performance like Mm -hmm. jeff goldblum he literally like can't he's is struggling to move his mouth because he just has so much shit on his face (laughs) and he has these crazy teeth in his mouth like you know these fake teeth in his mouth so he literally, as an actor, is he is struggling to, you know, still emote and, you know, still speak in the way he speaks, you know? And then, like, looking at his eyes, if you look at his eyes in this movie and don't get, like, instantly depressed, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what to tell you. Because, like, Jeff Goldblum <laughs> just, like, really sells it and, like, you, you see it, like, because they're, like, sunken into, you know? And, I mean... 
and he just has this like look of just like pure hopelessness at at one point like when he kind of you know is realizing like if i don't do something like i'm i'm done for you know and uh a, a look of desperation which i find found very like just powerful yeah and i think that it comes back to kind of his character arc right he as fate would have it one night he was at like this work function which he probably did not want to be at because like you said he kind of has these sort of uh, social awkwardness it might be might be a result of like being partially on the spectrum or something like that where he does not fit in and then of course he meets this beautiful woman and they have this relationship and this romance and to some extent it's probably something that he has always fantasized about having right because he's this he's this uh, mental giant and yet he lacks the social skills to kind of flourish in a way perhaps that he always wanted to so he goes from sort of like quote unquote some type of social lows to having the best of both worlds a beautiful woman and then the intellect and finally Mm -hmm. having the breakthrough on his project and then it he gets carried away with it right and we see early on that he has this rigidness and he has i don't i wouldn't say like he's got this quality to him that he can get carried away because he's too focused and if that means cutting out other people so be it to a certain extent but he's able to tame that a little bit with gina davis's character but then of course he gets carried away again at a little success. He becomes jealous and he decides, hey, I'm going to go with this through with this experiment on my own. And now it's all taken away in the blink of an eye because of a common housefly. Yeah, like I think one of the scarier elements of this film that, you know, people don't really talk about is there when you said he has the best of both worlds, you know, there is there's a section where where he's at his peak, you know, like like a little bit after the transformation or after the teleportation, and he's at his peak. He has he has Ronnie. His thing works. He has uh, the intellect already. Now he's got the physical peakness, and he's got the confidence, and he still has his charm. I mean, he is the at one point he is, and he's also Jeff Goldblum. He's the perfect man. Like at one point, he is absolutely perfect and then that's like you know what kind of flips that switch in his brain and Jeff Goldblum's performance in that section is like very scary because like one you're not used to him as an actor kind of going to that darker place and and it's just like it's really scary in this like intimidation like you said or he has it all at this point and like he and he's just like and you get this like sense of danger from him so it's like you know you have this like sense of danger in his eyes and the way he's performing and then as it you know flips to the other side of where he just like loses everything loses all hope and they just gets like absolutely desperate it's just like man it's really good and now (laughs) i want to see like current day jeff goldblum in a really like dark role like full on like real dark i think that'd be great his capacity to take it that dark and that disturbing of a performance is because even if you if you look at his character and you strip away like he's mutating into a fly monster this idea that the characteristics that he adapts all of a sudden once he kind of is at his peak that there's nothing unrealistic about that we all know people that as soon as they kind of get what they want they change into somebody completely different or they use that kind of power that perceived new status 
to be shitty to other people and to kind of further manipulate and use people to get what they want. And that portrayal is why it's, that's what's so disturbing about that for me is that all of the sci-fi elements and body horror stuff removed, like that is a very scary type of person. And you see like Mm -hmm. he becomes manic and that for me is the most terrifying part removed from the, um, from the, some of the body horror stuff. It's just this idea that he starts babbling about like plasma pools and all these things. He gets this God complex that there are people that fall down into that rabbit hole. And it's a portrayal that again, it speaks to like him on a human level before we get to kind of the fly level. But that human level is one that is very much rooted in reality. And for me, that's one of the definitely the more frightening elements of it because of how plausible that is. Yeah, like it's it's just super. Yeah, like when you think about it, it just gets super scary. And like I just thought of this just now. I want to get real like dark for a sec or deep. Like so the scene, you know, after the arm wrestling, he takes home that other gal. Right. And the the intentions and like the the attitude that he has in his brain you know is very predatory and it's like when you when you think about it's like he doesn't rape her but he kind of does like he can like you know in the way that he manipulates her and just like is kind of just going along with everything. Like she was like, Oh, I want to go more bars. Fine. We'll go to more bars, whatever. I don't care. As long as we're going to go back to my place, we're going to fuck. And I'm going to put you through a teleportation thing. Like, and wanting to put her through a teleportation thing. That's like rapey intentions, kind of in a weird way. Well, the idea that he's going to ply her with more and more booze, uh, she succumbs to his will, even though his initial interest in her is not sexual, even though it does go there. Like, he still wants to use her yeah. for something, whether it be sex or this fucked up experiment. Like this, it's the same qualities of a predator that would go on to rape someone. Yeah, because yeah, by like they have sex, but then at that point it wasn't about sex. Like he didn't really care. He was like, ah, oh, whatever. Like, yeah, she was like, oh, great night. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Anyway, so about this teleportation pot, right, uh, right. and it's like, in thinking about it in that aspect, I was like. Oh, that's kind of that's weird, and and it's great that Cronenberg, you know, being a master, knows that he doesn't need to go there. You know, mm-hmm. there's other directors that would not have the restraint, and they would have him rape somebody in this movie. You know, you right. almost think he's gonna rape Ronnie, but he doesn't. You almost think he's gonna, you know, kind of uh, rape this guy, and it's not in that traditional sense but any other you know uh, a less competent director would definitely be like ah fuck it yeah he's going crazy we're gonna have him get this gown he's gonna and it's gonna be gross and it's like we didn't have to go there but Mm -hmm. the but the idea is still there and like again that's why he's a master and i think that that really ties back into the restraint aspect on his part right he's able to be restrained uh, restrained in the way that he doesn't need to take it there because if he takes it to too much of an extreme we don't feel sympathetic for brundle anymore and we're not going to feel sympathetic mm-hmm. when he turns into a monster because then at that point you're like well he's a piece of shit like if he's raping people like if he played up that interaction between him and the girl from the bar even more so you lose all sympathy and then it's like good i'm glad he got shot in the fucking head whereas at the end of the film, like that whole sequence is heartbreaking where he's this fly metal uh, mashup and he b- can barely raise his claw and then he drags the shotgun barrel to his head. Like that loses all of the 
emotional weight to that scene if, well, yeah, he deserves that. He's a rapist piece of shit. So that restraint, again, from like his selective use of sex and using sex smartly throughout the film to establish relationships, but then also the restraint in, I mean, it comes through in like the metamorphosis phases of uh, Brundlefly, but just the restraint throughout the film in all aspects really does kind of carry the underlying message that Cronenberg's sending throughout the film in a way that, like we had said, if he was not a master of horror, it would have ended uh, much differently. It kind of plays on this idea of, you know, he, it, it's the intentions and like, you know, where he's at mentally and like, you know, also the idea that like, maybe there was a layer of this already there in him, you know, but again, he didn't have to go full tilt on him and then lose the sympathy from him. There's a, there was a quote that stuck out to me in this one. Uh, I'm an insect that dreamt he was a man, but now that's over. That insect has woken up. I thought that was like really interesting. I was like, huh, you know, and just like kind of this, like, you know, like, you know, it, I am, you know, just like, so I'm small, you know, like he finally at, at this point realizes, you know, he's not this, I mean, he is a genius. He is like this, but his, this is his ego finally getting put in check of being, being like, I am a small and insignificant, but I'm still trying to, you know, do something more. So it's like, this is like, so it's like, you know, it goes back and forth, which I really like, like, cause I mean, it is like a pretty steady progression of him getting dark, but then he'll go dark and then he'll reel it back in a little bit and he'll go back and then, you know, to get, get you back on Seth's side a little bit more and then they go forward more, you know? So the way that it's, he goes in that fashion instead of just like kind of just it being, you know, one fluid thing, it just kind of adds a little bit to, um, the character progression. Yeah, and I mean, the characters themselves become really boring if they're just kind of black and white, right? He's either really, really bad or really, really good. And you see the value in the relationship more than just like a physical attraction. There's Ronnie actually brings out the better elements of him and he makes him a person that you actually want to root for, even though he has that darkness inside of him that as soon as him and Ronnie begin to split away because of his own actions, like he kind of spirals and then she comes back when he needs her, when his body is literally breaking down and mm-hmm. he's got the crutches at one point and he's, he vomits on the donut and then he looks at her and she's like, Oh, that that's disgusting. Isn't it? Like little moments like that. I mean, it really does show that the two characters complete one another in a way that it makes their relationship more than just like a cheap plot device or that's what that's what two characters that's what the male character and the female character of course they should get together like it actually lends a lot of credence to Cronenberg's entire approach to the narrative he's telling in a way that touches on multiple levels in a way that makes it complicated and it makes some elements of it ugly and some elements mm-hmm. of it sexy and it that complicated nature of a relationship I find makes it memorable in a way that not a lot of relationships are. I mean, we said earlier, like they had this snappy dialogue and this kind of teasing one another. And yet it never feels rom-com-ish. And that's really mm-hmm. important to the integrity of that relationship. Yeah. It, it 
feels just it, it's very real and like even and, you know in the finale especially it's just you know so tragic that there's even still a moment where it's like Ronnie's like I, I can't kill you like you're mm-hmm. I, you're a monster pod man and I still <laughs> don't want to kill you like right. and you feel that though like it you know that sounds outlandish but it's like mm-hmm. you you still feel it because like they took the time to make this relationship so genuine so that way you know when he it's like if if this if the relationship didn't feel real and you weren't invested this whole time uh you know when you think about a fly pod man taking a shotgun and putting it in front of his head that sounds kind of silly but just because we were so invested in the way that they you know handled the entire story it it you felt it and it was just absolutely tragic you know he puts it there gina davis the way she like kind of she collapses for a sec but then she also you know doesn't hesitate too long either it's not like drawn out like no 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 it's like she she's like i don't want to but then she like is like i have to and you know and and you feel it you know and it's just ah see it's it's so good (laughs) the romance the build-up to that moment too like if she had a moment where she could break, right? She knows that he's changing and she knows that he's going, his body is, he's turning into something that is horrible. And yet if she can watch the man she loves, watch his ear fall off and still hang out, uh, hang around with him. Yeah. You believe that she's going to stick to the end, whether it has a happy or a negative outcome. And that is, again, it, it legitimizes their relationship in a way that, yeah, you could see her sticking around and doing the unthinkable to the man that she loves because she loves him. If she didn't love him, she would have fucking ran out of the room. She wouldn't have shot him. She would have said, well, this isn't my problem anymore. Yeah. I mean, the the scene that, like, you know, like you said, like, after he, like, loses his ear and she she still hugs him. He is covered in goop. He yeah. is thrown up on donuts <laughs> in front of you. He's been climbing walls. He is so disgusting, and she's still willing to embrace him, like, to support him. I was just like, man... I felt that one. Like, <laughs> I want, I need that hug right now, Gina Davis. <laughs> <laughs> we all need, uh, we all need to find our Ronnie, right? In wrapping up, I was curious if there are any kind of like little moments that really stick with you in this film that I kind of glossed over. Cause one for me is the fingernails, man. That every single time I see him like start to pull off his fingernails and I'm like, oh, that's still so fucking gross. And then he goes to squeeze them and starts spraying pus all over his bathroom mirror. Like, that's one of those scenes that I've probably seen it a dozen times and it still makes my skin crawl. I mean, I I like to think I am pretty I'm pretty strong stomached and willed when it comes to horror. I can I can watch some pretty fucked up shit. But the simplest things that will always get me is yeah, one, fingernails getting peeled. Like I just I can't because it's just such a realistic and like you know like relatable thing like because i mean how often do you fucking get bend your nails back and forth you know and but then and then the other one is uh yeah teeth like teeth will always get me i have a recurring nightmare that involves teeth all like literally weekly of like some scenario of teeth falling out or them like moving around in my mouth like it freaks me out so teeth will always get me as well so yeah there's like the one where he just like is like teeth all and they just like kind of just like the way he spits it out and like is like i was just like oh, no uh, always <laughs> but uh yeah chris wallace definitely earned his uh his pay on this one and i mean 
to kind of combine the teeth with the practical uh, effects of the movie. That scene when she when Gina Davis rips off his jaw, and then you see the mandibles, his new mandibles that are still moving. Mm-hmm. Like that part always freaks yeah, me out. Yeah, the way they they like twitch. <laughs> yeah, they're still twitching. Cause yeah, I have a thing about mouths and teeth, and it's just that whole that whole thing freaks me out. And then it, of course, the rest of his face starts tearing apart in a way that, again, it 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 all feels believable. And there's a within the world that Cronenberg makes, it feels very natural what's happening because of that texture that he applies to everything leading up to it. Whether it's his, it's very subtle at first, he's growing these gross black hairs everywhere, his skin is all getting kind of acne riddled, or he starts like sweating and there's pus coming out of him. Like you believe that everything that's happening to him is building to this. So that way when it does happen, it doesn't age in a way that makes it feel like ridiculous like if you try to go back and watch some older horror movies sometimes you see the practical effects and you're like yeah i'm kind of seeing some flaws in this that i didn't used to but in this i feel like the build-up is so natural that what occurs even if like you said you notice a couple of faults or things here and there it it gets sold in a way that you can tell cronenberg put in the legwork to making sure that it feels legitimate and it feels just as disgusting as the first time you see it yeah like it yeah, like I said, like I, I saw a few things here and there that like I was like, ah, oh, that's flapping. I see the seal coming up. on eh, it's, it's all good, though, like because it, it doesn't matter because I'm not supposed to be like that's not the, the highlight here. I mean, it's a part of it, but that's not the highlight here. Uh, which, yeah, and I also got a shout out once again. Um, Stathis is a very interesting character. One, that's the worst name ever. Who came yeah, up with that? I- <laughs> that's a, like a really boarding school preppy name. I, I, any, yeah, like the, the name is weird, but like, I mean, the, uh, uh, I don't have the Wikipedia page up anymore, but the actor that plays him, um, he, he, um, oh, uh, John gets, yeah, he's, uh, he's really good. Uh, uh, like the skeeviness is there, but then like, once you see him just like start reeling it in and then like realizing and then you're like oh like okay he isn't just the creepy ex-boyfriend that's just like hanging around taking showers in her apartment he still he also still cares for ronnie even though they aren't you know together anymore you know he is her boss also and it like very interesting that like uh, that's a that's a character that could be you know like be so bad for the film like that could that could be a character that could sink the film honestly if not you know done well and like i mean sometimes it's a little bit like kind of like as you know whatever but like at the same time like because it's like oh do i need scenes of gina davis and stathis interacting at the mall no (laughs) but it's there for a reason and you know just builds him out as a character as well and then he also you know gets his uh hand and ankle melted off which are amazing still like really good like like because you see a maniacal look in like seth's eyes after he does the hand and then he like is excited to do it on his foot and it's like oh man and then which is super weird to wrap back in stathis and the effects they're the only things that carry over into the fly too um, I haven't seen The Fly 2, but I've heard it's actually decent. Like, I heard it's not terrible, but on it, obviously, like, when Cronenberg turned it down, people were kind of like, eh. But I did watch um, the Good Bad Flicks 
um, review of it, and I was like, oh, I'm, I should actually check this movie out, maybe, you know, because obviously there there's a, a Brundle baby still in Gina Davis's stomach at the end of the movie. Um, that was a dream sequence. Oh, had to shout the dream sequence. Man, that oh, shit yeah, is yeah. nightmare fuel. <laughs> well, that's like the ultimate body horror moment of the film because it's this idea that it's like there's something inside of you and you have to get it out sooner rather than later like and i mean that's cronenberg cameo too uh as the the surgeon yeah i mean yeah that's an absolutely disgusting moment that i mean again it comes back to this idea that cronenberg is able to sell these because what sells that scene isn't really the worm baby right it's gina davis is freaking the fuck out and her anxiety about there being something in her body again coming back to this obsession with flesh something is inside of her body that she doesn't want to be there and seeing her anxiety and her terror over that before you even see the worm baby isn't in and of itself disturbing and upsetting it's upsetting on like a human level because you see this person that is so sweet and loving and then before she even sees the fly monster you see her and she's just so distressed and it you just want to kind of like reach out and help yeah it's yeah her her reaction to that is really great um really great scream work in this movie underrated there's some underrated screams in here gina davis her reaction to worm baby great scream stathis when he gets his hand uh melted off a really great horror scream for sure (laughs) and uh in regards to the fly too i actually just watched that for the first time uh, a couple of months ago And I would say it's definitely worth watching. Obviously, you have to go into it knowing it is nowhere as good as Cronenberg's The Fly, but it does have a similar attention to stellar practical effects. And it was actually directed by uh, Chris Wallace, who did this practical effects. Oh, and he he directed it. So he directed it. And then I believe he also did the practical effects for that one. So on that front, it's an awesome continuation of kind of just the body horror centric nature of the fly that Cronenberg kickstarted and that carries over narratively. It's not nearly as good. And there's no characters that have any semblance of a relationship that really rivals uh Goldblum or Gene Davis, but it is really practical effects, heavy and rewarding uh, in that, in that uh, instance. And Stathis does make a, a cameo in that, but it's very, very slight, but I wish I'd brought up his character earlier because his character really does complement the relationship between Brundle and uh, Ronnie in that it makes it this sordid kind of love triangle where the remnants of the past are trying to still interfere with the future. And again, nobody is really black and white in mm-hmm. this, right? He be, he's introduced to us as this mm-hmm. scumbag. And then over time, he kind of has a bit of a turn. He's still invested in Ronnie in a way that I want to help her out in this situation. And then of course, he comes to her rescue at the end of the film. And had he just been like the ultimate scumbag and Cronenberg kind of just overdone that angle, you don't give a shit when he gets his hand and his foot melted at the end of the film, right? It's kind of like, yeah, it's what you deserve. I hope he vomits on your face next kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Yeah, man. I had a blast as always chatting, uh, chatting horror with you and coming on and talk about The Fly because this is definitely one of those movies that every time I revisit it, it's kind of like, the angle that I love so much about your podcast in that when I revisit movies now, I think about them in terms of like, oh, what kind of subgenre angles does this take? Where does this introduce? And it it really does make revisiting old movies that much more fun and enjoyable. It's something that um, you and I share a great love for and just revisiting films and looking at them differently. So it's always a blast chatting with you. And uh, I'd love to give you a minute to kind of just plug your show because I've had the pleasure of 
being on and uh, obviously you've been on my show and uh, we just have really great yeah, conversations. Yeah, man, uh, I definitely appreciate you having me back on for this one. Um, yeah, like I said, like rewatching movies is like a really big thing for me. Like I, I love, you know, my comfort movies and it's weird that this is a comfort movie, you know, but it is just like, it's, it's so smooth. It's just, it's very, so lean. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's perfect. Like it's, it's a film that there's a lot more going on like i said it's like obviously it's memorable for the body horror elements and stuff but you know there there is a full thing there that makes those you know crazy moments count you know and um that's why you know cronenberg is a master so yeah uh thank you for having me on the show once again yeah um loved having you on bloody blunt cinema club which is uh, my podcast where we do um, break down the subgenres of horror films. Every month we do like a theme, and then whenever we talk the movies within that theme, then we kind of go in deeper than that as well and uh, just talk about you know the movies that we love. So um, if you want to check that out, you can um, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BloodyBluntCC, and my personal Twitter and Instagram pages are underscore Daddy Disco. Um, I write for Nightmare on Film Street, I do short films. I do. Uh, I do. I do a lot of random things. So, follow me. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service, and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>